When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limoronko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Paul Halpern about the new book, Flashes of Creation, George Gamow, Fred Hoyle, and the, big, uh, the Great Big Bang Debate. Today, the Big Bang is so entrenched in our understanding of the cosmos that uh, to doubt it would seem crazy. But as Paul Halpern shows in Flashes of Creation, just decades ago, its mere mention caused sparks to fly. At the center of the debate were Russian-American physicist George Gamow and British astrophysicist Fred Hoyle. Halpern captures the brilliance of both thinkers and reminds us that even those proved wrong have much to teach us about boldness, imagination, and the universe itself. Well, Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for inviting me. So as we're living through the unprecedented times of the global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Well, um, so first of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about how the pandemic affected my book, Flashes of Creation. Uh, It was funny because I usually write my books while sitting in a coffee shop or a cafe, and I enjoy the atmosphere of writing in a cafe, uh, an American-style cafe, which is uh, an independent version of Starbucks. Uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Starbucks, but I like to go to independent-style cafes of a similar sort where you can sit with a laptop and listen to music And there's a lot of people around, and sometimes you can interact with people to take the break, but then you can sit and concentrate on your work or concentrate on your writing. There's nobody who's going to interrupt you. Nobody's going to ask questions that will interrupt the train of thought. So that's why I enjoy working in coffee shops. And many of my recent books were written there in places uh, which were independent coffee shops. But uh, this time... Uh, I realized in March 2020 that the bulk of my book, Flashes of Creation, had not yet been written. I had about 60,000 words left to write. And all of a sudden, because of the pandemic, rightly so, um, there was a lockdown and in my state. And uh, within a few days, all of the cafes, coffee shops, any place to go out, libraries, any place to get out of the house 
were were closed. So I realized that I have to really try a different way of writing, which is to sit at my dining room table and write. And uh, there I have normally uh, my dog, Kepler, who's a uh, standard poodle, is my companion. And uh, in the past, when I'm sitting and writing, he kind of gives me a look that he would like me to take him on a walk or do something with him or play with him. And I feel rather guilty, but I was able to overcome that and focus on my writing. And I was able to write in the span of about three months when I was pretty much stuck at home most of the time, uh, most of the books. So this is definitely a pandemic uh, written project. Uh, Luckily, I did a lot of the research for the book before the pandemic. So I was able to travel to England and to visit the uh, Hoyle collection at Cambridge to do research for Flashes of Creation. And before that, I had actually stopped in Switzerland to do research, to finish up my research for a previous book, Synchronicity, which was based on Pauli and Jung. So I had the pleasure of visiting Geneva and going to CERN and seeing the Pauli collection, Sao Pali at, uh, at CERN, and then also going to Zurich and seeing um, the uh, Jung uh, collection at the ETH uh, library in, in Zurich. So it was, uh, it was lucky that I managed to get my traveling in before the pandemic. So just to say a few words about myself, I'm born in Philadelphia, but I really love to travel and uh, before the pandemic, I did much traveling around the world. I've been to almost every continent in the world. I love Europe. I've traveled to most every country in Europe. And uh, I've traveled to, throughout the United States, South America, even to India. So um, that is a pursuit of mine, traveling. I love uh, cycling, walking, um, all of these uh, outdoor hobbies, plus I love to read. Uh, And uh, lived in Philadelphia most of my life. I'm a professor of physics at the University of the Sciences at Philadelphia. And uh, I've been working here for a number of years, uh, teaching physics and writing books. Flashes of Creation is my my 17th book, Uh, Synchronicity, which was based in part on, as I said, on research in Switzerland, was my 16th book. Uh, So both of them were written within a year of each other. So that was a very major project. I also publish articles. I'm very interested in the history of science. I'm currently the vice chair of the Forum for the History of Physics of the American Physical Society. And in that guise, I arrange uh, talks um, so I, I'm arranging uh, sessions at the March meeting and April meeting of the American Physical Society. And uh, that's been a big project, including arranging uh, time for a Nobel Prize winner uh, to speak. Uh, it's, it's quite a lot of work getting that all set up. And uh, in terms of my scholarly background and my academic background, I went to university at Temple University in Philadelphia, and then got my degree at, um, at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. My degree is in theoretical physics, and the subject was general relativity. And my advisor was, 
the esteemed physicist Max Dresden, who is was originally from Holland, and uh, he took me on uh, at Stony Brook. After I left Stony Brook, I was a little bit tired of doing mathematical research uh, because it was a very intense mathematical calculation, and I decided to try some writing. And then I began working the next year on my first book, which is Time Journeys. And uh, writing was a very different process at, at that time because I needed to go to physical libraries. It's before the internet. And uh, I used a very primitive Mac computer with floppy disk drives to work on my first book. Uh, so it was quite a different experience. I had to print out one copy of the manuscript, which was shopped, which I shopped around to several different publishers. And uh, so it's uh, it's quite a different age today to do writing. There are some advantages and disadvantages. The advantage today is that there's access to so much information that I don't have to travel physically to a number of libraries. I can get access to libraries around the world for a lot of the material uh, just through the internet online. Uh, the disadvantage is that the internet uh, provides a lot of distractions. And uh, I happen to be very active on Twitter. My hand, Twitter handle is at P Halpern. So at uh, first letter of my first name and then my entire last name, Halpern. And uh, that is also a great thing because I get to interact with people about history of science, but also can be a distraction because there's so much to read in terms of Twitter posts, uh, tweets, and there's so much to read elsewhere by uh, clicking on these links and uh, you know news. But uh, I try as much as possible to stay focused, which has been uh, one of my goals later in life is to be focused on positive activities such as writing, exercise, music, and other things. So what excites you most about studying physics? And what would you tell our younger listeners, like students and maybe early career researchers? So I got excited about physics uh, when I was in high school. And uh, I, was, I was about 15 years old. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I realized that... Um, one of the easiest subjects for me was maths. So I was uh, doing well in mathematics. But I also had this interest in things like the stars, where the universe came from. And I read at that time a book by George Gamow called One, Two, Three, Infinity. And I developed an infinity, affinity for popular science books and also science fiction. I read a lot of science fiction, including Isaac Asimov, and I started to dream about other worlds, what other planets could be like, what the universe might be like, uh, space travel, time travel, all sorts of things. And I realized that that subject could be uh, explored in some ways through physics. So I, I came into physics through science fiction and popular science. And then I studied it as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student my advisor, uh, Max Dresden, introduced me to the idea of exploring alternative 
cosmologies. Cosmology means the study of the universe. And I looked at alternative possibilities, alternative ways the Big Bang could have progressed, including what's called the mixed master universe. And I think for young people today, there are so many opportunities in science, everything from exploring uh, biophysics and biology, um, looking at uh, uh, new uh, you know, types of drug design, for example, is a, is, a, is a growing field. But then also looking at the stars and looking at the ga- uh, distant galaxies with the launch of the James Webb Telescope, we can explore the universe as never before. And young people today uh, could well um, get excited in physics by considering the idea that we can look back in time, see how the first stars and galaxies formed, and understand whether or not there's life on other planets. And I think the Webb Telescope, if it is uh, completed, it's, it's, it's going through different phases, but if it, if it um, starts up successfully and starts taking images, we may have data about other planets to look at those planets to see if there might be signs of, of life in their atmosphere. And that is very, very exciting. So I would encourage uh, young people to explore science. So your latest book is The Flashes of Creation, George Gamow, Fred Hoyle, and the Great Big Band Debate. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Well, the book is about two figures. Fred Hoyle, who was a British physicist who was born in 1915, and George Gamow, who was a Russian-Ukrainian physicist. And I say both because when he was born, Ukraine was in the Russian Empire, but he was born in Odessa, which is now part of Ukraine. And he was born in 1904. And um, I was interested as a child in both of these figures. As mentioned, when I was around 15, I read the book One, Two, Three, Infinity by George Gamow, which is a delightful book that explores mathematics and physics questions such as what happens when you take an object and reflect it in the mirror and why are left-handed gloves different from right-handed gloves uh, which is a subject called chirality or parity, and uh, and explored topics such as the beginning of the universe and the origin of life. So I was always very interested in the life and work of George Gamow. And Fred Hoyle, I saw speak once, and I read some of his books, including The Black Cloud, which is a science fiction novel. And... Um, written in the 1950s. And I was uh, very much interested in their work. And I always thought in the back of my mind that I would write about one or both of them. I keep an ideas file on my computer. And um, in my ideas file, I had a whole folder about Fred Hoyle and a whole folder about George Gamow. And I knew that Fred Hoyle and George Gamow Gamow had each written at least partial autobiographies, but sometimes autobiographies are incomplete. In Gamow's case, his autobiography only went up to the real, basically the 1930s, uh, which is rather odd because he lived into the 1960s. So it didn't really cover a lot of his life. 
And in Fred Hoyle's case, his autobiography is very, very long. Uh, it's well-written, but it contains a lot of details that might not be of interest to readers. And he doesn't really put his work in the context of competing ideas. And then um, a few years ago, I was exploring ideas for books and running ideas past my agent, uh, my wonderful liter- literary agent, Giles Anderson, and the editor I have been working with, uh, T.J. Kelleher, and uh, I was, you know, posing ideas, and uh, and one of the ideas I suggested was uh, looking at the Big Bang theory from the perspective of the debate in the 1950s between Fred Hoyle and George Gamow, and I knew that that was a very intense debate, and even when I was a child. I knew older people were still talking about the debate. They would say, what do you believe in, the steady state theory or the Big Bang theory? Now, uh, everybody would say the Big Bang theory, and uh, maybe they would say some versions of the Big Bang theory, but the steady state theory is no longer uh, as popular. In fact, it's, it's rather obscure now. But in the 1950s and even in the 1960s, um, people were still talking about the debate. And I find historical debates fascinating because people take different sides. Sometimes people switch camps. Uh, so, um, so there are people who originally were steady state people and then became convinced to become big bang people. So, um, so that was, uh, that was very exciting for me, this debate. And I'd written several other books where I would explore either collaborations or debates between uh, key scientific figures. For example, Einstein's Dice and Schrodinger's Cat explores the collaboration and debate between Einstein and Schrodinger. And uh, another book, The Quantum Labyrinth, explores the long-term friendship of Richard Feynman and John Wheeler. So... I've, I've sort of gotten to a, into a pattern of writing about pairs of physicists who had interactions with each other. And Hoyle and Gamow did not interact very much in person. Uh, in fact, I could only one f- find one documented meeting of them in 1956 in California, but they interacted a lot in the media. They were both big fans of the media, uh, Gamow did a lot of television. He wrote a lot of popular books. And Hoyle uh, was on the radio and also wrote popular books. And they had magazine articles that were uh, paired with each other in Scientific American, which is a popular science magazine. So um, there was a lot of debating between them, I, I would say, using a modern term, virtual debating uh, in the media between the two of them. So I thought that was a fascinating topic and I hope I've conveyed that enthusiasm to readers in my book, Flashes of Creation. So these two remarkable physicists, Gamow and Hoyle, are the protagonists in your, in your story. So what do you know about their early lives? Well, George Gamow was born in the city of Odessa, which is, as I mentioned, now in Ukraine. It's a port city, 
uh, famous for shipping, fishing, and um, it's uh, it's a lively city from what I understand. I've never been to Odessa, but I love to go to Odessa. Some of my ancestors were from Ukraine, so I have an affinity for Ukraine. And, um, and it, at that time, it was part of the Russian Empire. And when George Gamov was born, uh, the Tsar was the leader of Russia. And uh, as he grew up, uh, something uh, very strange happened. Uh, 1910, Halley's Comet arrived close to Earth, and there was an international scare. And of course, he was five years old, so he didn't know about the scare, but he did go uh, and look from his house at the comet. And uh, the scare affected Ukraine. Um, people were panicking because they thought that the comet would bring the end of the world. It, there was some, uh, s- some observations of a gas in the comet, um, which turned out to be in very, very minute quantities. But people were worried about this gas. Uh, I think it's pronounced cyanogen. Uh, would um, would blanket the earth and suffocate the earth. So there was kind of a panic. So it was a time people were starting to explore astronomy. People were starting to think about the heavens more and more. And it was a time that popular media started to come into play because the first films were being broadcast then, uh, early silent movies, and the silent movies sometimes would have newsreels, and the newsreels would convey science to the public. So this was something that Gamov was familiar with, and as I'll explain, Hoyle also became very familiar with the movies, uh, with the cinema. So, um, so Gamov grew up, his father was a teacher, and his father uh, encouraged his interest in science greatly. His father had a rather controversial student. One of his first students was Lev Davidovich Bronstein. Bronstein. And Lev Davidovich Bronstein is better known as uh, Leon Trotsky, the, uh, the Russian revolutionary who uh, b- played a part in the uh, Russian Revolution of 1917. But anyway, um, at that time, he was just a pupil of um, of Gamov's father, and uh, he, for some reason, didn't like Gamov's father as a teacher and circulated a petition to the classroom to try to get him removed from the school. So I, I call that, in my book, the first Trotsky, Trotskyist coup, coup d'etat, because he was trying to take over the classroom. Uh, but uh, I found very interesting uh, bits of information like that about the early life of Gamov. Uh, Gamov had a difficult birth. He was a cesarean section. He was born as an emergency on a table next to bookshelves. So he he attributed that to his lifelong love of books. As he grew up, he realized his interest in science. And then the Russian Revolution came about and then a counter-revolution. So there was a lot of fighting. There was the Red Army and the White Army were fighting for many years in Odessa so his education was interrupted, and finally he decided to go to St. Petersburg uh, to continue his education, uh, which then became known 
as uh, uh, eventually became known as Petrograd and then Leningrad. So the city kept changing names. Now it's back to St. Petersburg. Uh, But when he was studying there, it became known as Leningrad. And he had a very famous teacher, Alexander Friedman. Alexander Friedman was one of the first to develop solutions to Einstein's equations of general relativity, which explore how the universe develops. That's one of the implications. Friedman uh, was a meteorologist. He loved weather balloons and used weather balloons to explore the atmosphere. And he came up with a kind of balloon analogy for the early universe. He imagined the universe, early universe is like a balloon that expands and might contract someday. So it either keeps expanding or it expands and then contracts. And these are called the Friedman models of the universe. George Gamow learned about these. He took a course in general relativity with Friedman and was about to study uh, relativity with Friedman. And then tragically, uh, Friedman died at a young age from typhoid. Uh, it may have been a res- result of going up in a weather balloon and and getting very sick uh, from being up in the upper atmosphere with the weather balloon. And then he went on holiday uh, to um, to Crimea and got sick again there. And then he, he developed typhoid. So Gamov was crushed. He couldn't study cosmology and, and general relativity. So he started studying quantum physics. But that was very fortunate because he made a break, major breakthrough in understanding how nuclear particles decay, how, um, how radiation happens. So, for example, uranium can give off particles and radiate. And Gamov mapped out the process by which um, uranium and other radioactive elements can radiate. And he became very famous for that. He went back. Uh, he traveled to, to Europe, uh, to Western Europe, went back to Russia. He was very famous. But then uh, under Stalin, he was not able to leave the Soviet Union and he tried to escape. He got married. He tried to escape on a boat in the Black Sea. And then um, eventually he got an invitation to Brussels to go to a Salve meeting in 1933 and he managed to get his wife an invitation too, his wife named Ro, uh, Ro Gamov. And uh, they traveled together to Brussels and then they defected to the West with the help of uh, Madame Marie Curie, very famous physicist. And she helped them find position. And then they went to the United States and got a job at George Washington University. And that's where Gamow started exploring the early universe and developed the mechanisms for um, the Big Bang Theory. Uh, He didn't invent the Big Bang Theory, but he developed the idea that all matter was created in the Big Bang. Okay, so now to talk a little bit about his competitor, Fred Hoyle. Well, Fred Hoyle was born in England in 1915. He was born in the town of Bingley, which is in Northern England, and it's a rather working class part of England. 
his uh, father was involved in the mill industry uh, in terms of making uh, wool products, such as wool clothing uh, and selling the wool clothing. So his father was uh, definitely in the, in the middle class, um, not a uh, prestigious professor. Uh, and uh, that part of England is, uh, was known at the time. Uh, things have changed to some extent. But Northern England is known as being a little bit rougher, a little bit um, more working class for the most part. Unlike uh, Southern England, the stereotype of Southern England is that it's more fancy, more posh, more upper class, uh, although there's exceptions in both cases. Um, so then um, Hoyle uh, was also a very bright student, and his mother worked in the movie theater. She was the pianist who would play music while the silent movies were being uh, run in a cinema. And um, so Hoyle spent much of his early life in cinemas. And his mother at one time lost her job, but then was rehired because people loved her piano playing. And that gave Hoyle not just a love for cinema, but also a love for music. So those were two of his passions, cinema and music. And uh, he eventually, Hoyle would eventually write the libretti for two operas. So he contributed to the musical field as well as to science. Um, He got interested in astronomy early on by looking at the stars over his town of Bingley and being fascinated by the stars in the sky but uh, originally he wanted to study chemistry, and in high school he um, he applied to a university in the north, uh, University of Leeds, and didn't get in. But then he managed to get into Cambridge University, which is very prestigious. And when he s- started there, he began to study physics, and the area he studied was. Um, uh, originally nuclear physics, a bit like Gamow. He had learned about the work of Gamow because Gamow was about a decade ahead of him. Um, so he was he had a lot of respect for Gamow and was studying nuclear physics under luminaries uh, such as Max Born, Paul Dirac, great physicists uh, such as them. And um, so he... Uh, wasn't really interested in astronomy anymore or cosmology. But then uh, World War II hit and he became involved in the war effort, including radar. And radar became utilized to a greater and greater extent after the war for astronomy. Uh, radio, The field of radio astronomy was born. So astronomy became a very hot topic after World War II. And Hoyle traveled to the United States. He met with a famous astronomer, Walter Bade. And uh, Walter Bade uh, came up with a theory of supernova or exploding stars. And he came up with the idea that there were two generations of stars, older stars, a a previous generation that exploded and created the material which formed the seeds of newer stars. And Hoyle was fascinated by that, by that idea 
and it helped him uh, transition into the field of astrophysics, where he began to work on the idea that all of the elements were created in the stars. That's in contrast to Gamow's idea, which is all the elements are created in the Big Bang. So Hoyle's idea is called stellar nucleosynthesis. Gamow's idea is called Big Bang nucleosynthesis. It turns out that both of them were correct in some ways, that Gamow was correct for the some of the simpler elements were created in the Big Bang, such as helium, and Hoyle was correct that all the other elements uh, higher than helium were created in stars. So we can attribute the understanding of matter to both of those genius physicists. And uh, the steady state theory was born when um, Fred Hoyle went to a cinema. I mentioned his love of cinema, cinemas with uh, Tommy Gold, another physicist, and Herman Bondi. And that gave him the idea from a film that they saw, which was had a kind of repetitive plot that the universe recycled itself in some ways, and that became the steady state theory of the universe. So that led to the big debate, steady state, uh, sponsored by Hoyle, Gold, and Bondi, advocated by them rather, and um, Gamow's idea, which he worked on with his student, Ralph Alpher, and another physicist, Bob Herman, which was that the universe was what started in a hot big bang. So what was the reception of these two theories, the big bang and the steady state universe at a time? Did it actually divide the field? So when, um, Gamma proposed his ideas, um, people found them interesting. Einstein was impressed. Um, some people were impressed by the idea, but it soon ran into roadblocks, stumbling blocks, because Gamow couldn't really explain how elements higher than helium were formed. Um, the process he developed involved required temperatures that were extremely hot. But the Big Bang, because of the expansion of the universe, cools off over time. It cools off rather quickly because the universe is expanding. Um, so something like if you had a bowl of soup, a flexible bowl of soup, and it was very hot, and you took that bowl and you kept expanding and expanding it until the bowl became this giant bowl, and you had a very shallow bowl of soup, it would cool off very rapidly. Similarly, the material in the universe began to cool off rather rapidly after the first seconds of the Big Bang. So the Big Bang was hot enough to produce helium, but it wasn't hot enough to produce anything much, much beyond lithium. There was a little bit of lithium produced. But then there was a stumbling block because... It required an immensely high temperature for elements such as carbon to form. And carbon, we know, is essential for life. So if we wonder, want to understand how we got here, how life got here, we have to understand how carbon formed. And Gamow's theory could not explain that. And the other thing it couldn't explain is the 
age of the universe because in the 1950s, when people tried to measure the age of the universe, looking at the expansion of the universe, they came up with a figure of uh, two to three billion years. Um, in European terms, I think it's called milliard or a, a, a thousand million years. Um, but uh, Americans say billion years. So two to three billion years. And, um, and that's, uh, that's much younger than Earth, much younger than the, the, um, than the stars. So how could the universe be younger than the things that are in it? It didn't make any sense. So some people thought that the Big Bang Theory had a lot of flaws. The steady state theory um, hadn't really been proven or disproven. It's um, in the 1950s. There wasn't evidence in favor of it, but there wasn't evidence against it. The steady state theory says that as the galaxies move away from each other, the old galaxies, new galaxies emerge to fill in their places. So the universe always looks roughly the same over time. So um, it's a bit like uh, if you had a, uh, a neighborhood where um, people are moving away, let's say that it's a suburban neighborhood and people leave their houses and move to a farther suburb. Let's say they want more farmland or more greenery. So they move to a farther suburb but then new people from the city uh, move into their old houses. So the general feel of the um, area stays pretty much the same, the same population density, because whenever the older people move out, newer people move in, and um, the neighborhood stays pretty stable. Um, and that's what Hoyle, Gold, and Bondi, who were uh, two other physicists working on the project, thought about the universe and how do these galaxies get here? Well, they thought that very tiny drops of matter form constantly in space, so tiny that they're undetectable. So we're talking about just a particle, you know, emerging uh, very, very infrequently, so completely undetectable, and um, and these slowly. Um, coagulate, they slowly clump together with each other into larger and larger particles. And those clump together into uh, objects that eventually are large enough to ignite via hydrogen fusion and become stars. Those stars eventually cluster together and become galaxies. And that's how new galaxies fill in the gaps. So there was a big debate and Many British physicists in particular, many physicists in the UK, strongly supported the steady state theory. In fact, the astronomer Royal at the time, Harold Spencer, um, supported the, or Lord Spencer, supported the um, steady state theory. And it became almost the official British theory about the universe. On the other hand, the Pope at the time, Pope Pius, really loved the idea of a Big Bang and compared it to biblical Genesis, compared the idea that the universe started in a hot Big Bang, a point-like object, to 
the biblical idea of the universe having a beginning in time. And uh, Pius was very excited about it. He gave uh, several speeches about this. And ironically, a priest who first proposed the mathematical idea of the uh, Big Bang, and uh, pardon my pronunciation for those of you who speak French, but Georges Lemaitre, um, a Belgian priest, uh, came came up with the idea of the Big Bang originally, and he counseled um, the Pope to say, well, do not mix science with religion. Um, so um, so uh, that was some advice that the Pope did not take. He, he said that um, the science show pointed to religious truths, and he thought that the Big Bang pointed to the validity of the b- biblical Genesis. So, um, so those were uh, very important figures who advocated on both sides, and uh, throughout Europe, continental Europe, the debate raged. Uh, there are many advocates of the Big Bang. In the United States, there tended to be more support for the Big Bang. But then there was um, some people who still liked the steady state. For example, Bob Wilson, who eventually would uh, help prove the Big Bang theory, was originally an advocate of the steady state. Um, and uh, so, um, so there were there were um, two different camps. Uh, if you numerically, I would say the Big Bang was probably a larger camp at the time. But there were was a strong uh, advocacy of the steady state theory, which essentially died out after the mid 1960s when uh, evidence for the Big Bang was forthcoming. So, why do you think these two theories were not reconciled or seen as complementary at the time? The problem with the steady state theory is that the universe obviously ages. If you look at further and further away with a telescope, as we're about to see with the James Webb Space Telescope, which is very exciting, as you look out with a telescope, you see older and older objects. You see objects from uh, way back in time. And this became apparent in the early 1960s when objects called originally called quasi-stellar objects or quasars, were discovered by Martin Schmidt and others. And um, they realized that these objects were extremely far away. So it meant that they came from the distant past of the universe. So from billions of years in the past of the universe. And these objects looked very, very different from modern objects. They were uh, giving off very, very intense radiation, blast of radiation beyond anything conceivable today. So galaxies today are relatively quiet unless you have a supernova explosion. Galaxies today do not give off harmful radiation, which we're lucky about because our Milky Way galaxy does not give off harmful radiation from the center. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We would have been fried a long time ago by the radiation from the center of the Milky Way. But quasars, which we believe represent early proto-galaxies or the ancestors of today's galaxies, they give off immense amounts of radiation. So 
there was really no explanation in the steady state theory for why the universe seems to have evolved. It's a kind of evolution of the universe, just like biological evolution, the universe evolves from primitive objects such as quasars to contemporary objects such as modern galaxies. So Hoyle's theory could not explain that. It also couldn't explain the radiation filling the universe called the cosmic microwave background radiation, which was discovered in 1964, 1965, became a very uh, popular uh, through uh, media releases in 1965. And that immediately turned people toward the Big Bang because the Big Bang provides the only real explanation of why um, the universe is filled with this background hiss, this background radiation, which is now uh, something like 2.73 degrees um, Kelvin, so 2.73 degrees above absolute zero. And the steady-state theory could not explain that. And in fact, Hoyle changed the steady-state theory into something called the quasi-steady-state theory to start trying to explain these uh, phenomena, but he wasn't very successful convincing people of that. And then finally, the Big Bang Theory explains how much helium there is in the universe. There's an incredible amount of helium in the universe, which cannot be explained through stars. It has to be explained through a hot Big Bang. So that's why the steady state camp greatly diminished starting in the mid-1960s. Now, other ideas by Hoyle and Gamow could be reconciled. For example, Hoyle's model of stellar nucleosynthesis, the idea that the elements were created in stars, turned out to be mostly correct. Except for helium, most of the higher elements are created in stars. So the reconciliation comes in the explanation, not of the universe, but the explanation of how matter arose uh, through the Big Bang, and also through stars. Uh, part of it arose through the hot Big Bang, that's helium, and then everything else arose through processes that took place in the stars. Oh, that's really fascinating. So at this point, I usually ask about the bigger picture, but because you're already talking on a scale of universe, I don't think we can go any bigger. So let's come back to Earth. And what, in your opinion, are the key implications of researching and testing these theories for our society? So, um, well, first to address uh, what you said about the universe, um, there may, this is a hypothetical idea, be something greater than the universe. There's an idea of a multiverse. And uh, that emerged actually during Hoyle's lifetime, uh, the idea that there may be other universes seeded uh, in ancient times and early times, so that not only was there a Big Bang, but there were other bangs in other in other universes. Uh, so that's a rather controversial idea. Uh, it hasn't been proven. It's it's unclear if it could ever be proven. But Hoyle knew about that idea, and that would have provided a way for him to justify an eternal cosmos without having to uh, cling to the steady state, he could have been vindicated by saying, well, the steady state 
is not true in our universe, but is true in a multiverse. Uh, but Hoyle decided not to do that. But in terms of the implications about Earth, um, well, it's clear that the helium on Earth comes from the Big Bang. The static hiss uh, that you see with old television sets comes from leftover radiation from the Big Bang. So if you're ever watching uh, old-fashioned broadcast television and somehow you see a hiss, and uh, many of you are probably too young to remember broadcast television, but uh, in the old days, television was broadcast through signals. I guess uh, you might have this if you have a satellite television set. Um, And if it wasn't picking up a signal, you'd pick up this hiss. Well, a lot of that hiss comes from the Big Bang. Uh, so, so we see that on Earth. In terms of element creation, um, if you go to a, a, a birthday party um, and there are balloons which have helium, the helium in the balloons uh, comes from mostly from the Big Bang. But most of the people and everything else at the party comes from the interior of stars that exploded as supernova, which was Hoyle's idea. So uh, you can thank Gamov and Hoyle for the fun that uh, kids have at birthday parties through their helium balloons and through being alive, through uh, carbon in their bodies and other elements in their bodies. <laughs> so so um, those are some of the implications. As the great uh, scientist Carl Sagan said, we are all made of star stuff. And Hoyle was one of the first to show that we are all made of star stuff, that, we, that our elements come from the stars, except from heli- for helium, which comes from the Big Bang. So what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Flashes of Creation, surprised you the most? Well, in the process of writing the book, I was really excited to talk to many key figures, including relatives of Gamov and Hoyle. I spoke to Gamov's son, uh, his elderly son, who has unfortunately since passed away. And I spoke to Hoyle's uh, two children, his uh, son and his daughter. And it was fascinating hearing about their lives. They all had exciting lives. And uh, that was interesting because Gamov's son tried to continue Gamov's writing tradition by continuing some of his popular science series. And he was also an inventor, Igor Gamov. Um, he passed away last year, unfortunately. And, um, and Hoyle's uh, daughter um, rebelled against science for a while. She went to London and became kind of a hippie explored the culture in London, and then came back to science and um, became very much interested in science in her later years. And Hoyle's son, Jeff Hoyle, um, became a science fiction writer himself and collaborated with his father. And Hoyle's granddaughter, Nicola Hoyle, um, became a scientist and then turned to uh, cinema. So uh, reflecting her grandfather's interest in cinema, and she um, developed the special effects for some of the Harry Potter movies and also for the movie, I think, Invictus and a few other uh, popular movies. Uh, So we can thank her for the special effects 
So I, I learned about all those things in researching the book. And also I got to interview uh, several Nobel Prize winners, including Bob Wilson and Ario Penzias, who discovered the background radiation for the Big Bang, and Jim Peebles, who at the time I interviewed him was not a Nobel Prize winner. He, he talked to me about interpreting the radiation for the Big Bang. He was one of the key interpreters of the radiation. And then a month after I spoke with him, uh, the Nobel Prize was announced for him, which was a real surprise and delight. Um, so he's a very nice person. I, I've been interacting with him uh, because he's giving a talk uh, at a conference in New York City in April. And uh, I, uh, it's amazing how some of the Nobel Prize winners are incredibly warm and friendly people. And even though they've made discover- major discoveries, they're very humble and uh, very down-to-earth people. So that's uh, been delightful to get to know uh, Nobel Prize winners and discover their human sides and how friendly and forthcoming they are. Uh, so just because you're a genius scientist doesn't mean you have to be arrogant. In fact, many genius scientists tend to have a high level of humility and um, are really very easy to talk to. And then when you had to adjust to writing your book in your living room, did you have to put the ambient sounds of the coffee shop to keep you focused? <laughs> so um, so I didn't really, I, I did play some music. I like to play classical music sometimes when I write uh, with headphones. Uh, I mean, play, uh, play, uh, t- uh, files of classical music, MP3s of classical music. Uh, but uh, I managed to feel stay focused, uh, mostly because I was absolutely nervous that I wouldn't complete the book in time. So re- I was really in panic mode. Uh, so uh, sometimes when I'm finishing up a book, I go into a kind of panic, and that stimulates my adrenaline but it also stimulates a lot of ideas. It's a very strange experience. Uh, people who are creative, uh, sometimes if you, if you completely isolate yourself and just focus on the creativity, sometimes ideas just pop into your head. And it's, it's rather bizarre, but I would wake up in the morning and all of a sudden I'd have a paragraph or two in my head and I'd have to find paper and write it down before I forget it. I would just my brain would just be writing on its own without me even like sitting at a computer or sitting, you know, writing it down. So, and that only really happens when I'm in a very, very focused mood. And that usually happens when I'm panicking (laughs) because uh, normally when I'm not panicking, I like to live a well-rounded lifestyle. And when I'm home, when there's, when I'm not in a lockdown, when I'm home, when um, I'm able to get out, I try to be helpful around the house. I try to spend time with my dog, walking my dog. I try to have a balance. But uh, when I was in the panic mode writing the book, I had no balance. I was just eating enough to sustain the calories needed to write my book and sleeping enough to refresh my mind enough to write my book. It's a very strange experience, but 
I was very productive. I, it's something I can't really sustain for a long time, but I was able to sustain it for the months of the lockdown. And it was probably a good, good timing because um, there wasn't too much to do during that time. And, uh, and we have a friend who was very, very kind to even, um, you know, cook some food for us and so forth. So uh, that we're very grateful to. And uh, so we, we uh, were very self-sufficient and I was able to focus on my book. So I feel fortunate in that way. And also resisting the strongest force in the universe, which is uh, the puppy dog eyes. That's an impressive skill. <laughs> yes. Um, so, um, yeah, so I feel very lucky about, about that period, even though it was, of course, tra- tragic what happened and continued to happen with, with the pandemic. And we're all hoping it will be over soon. Well, Paul, it has been truly fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Well, I after writing books, um, I take time to reflect. I write down ideas for different um, things. And also, sometimes I turn to article writing. So I don't just write books, I write articles. And I was fortunate to get two invitations uh, for writing pieces um, that one of them is complete is for an Italian um, uh, journal that um, publishes popular articles in English uh, as well as Italian. And I wrote a piece about somebody named Ernst Mach and his ideas about inertia, which explains Um, Inertia is why things move in a straight line at constant speed unless acted on by a force. And that's a a real mystery why that happens. But a lot of great physicists and cosmologists, including Einstein himself, uh, debated that and uh, looked at the work of Ernst Mach to try to understand uh, why that happens. So that article... Is, go- is going to be published any day now in an Italian journal. And, uh, and then I have another article that I wrote as a book chapter. So it's really a b- book chapter. And that is about the work of John Wheeler, who is a great American physicist, who I've written about in, um, in a previous book. But this is a scholarly uh, book about the history of experimental general relativity. And I write about Wheeler's contributions um, to that topic. And I learned a lot from that project too, because um, I discovered that after World War II, there was a lot of funding in the United States for developing an idea called anti-gravity. So the idea that you might be able to make a some kind of uh, shield that protects objects from gravity and prevents objects from experiencing gravity, which of course we now believe is impossible. But in the 1950s, uh, people, including military people, thought that they'd be able to launch rockets using um, anti-gravity shields. So um, there was a lot of funding for anti-gravity, which led to people using that funding to develop 
ideas in general relativity and more standard gravitation. So people took the funding and did more conventional projects using that funding. So I show in my book chapter how Wheeler's expertise with military work um, led him to help uh, facilitate funding for civilian work in gravity by appealing to uh, military uh, minds and saying, well, look, um, these, you know, we, we need funding for the gravity. Who knows what might come up with it, you know, from it, come out of it. But, uh, you know, so I thought that was very interesting. And uh, there was also funding from uh, somebody named uh, uh, Babson, who, um, who, who was uh, horrified when two of his family members drowned in a swimming pool and he didn't blame their swimming skills or um, the water for that. He blamed gravity and he was uh, very angry with gravity, with gravitation for those deaths and vowed to combat gravity. And he also gave a lot of funding for anti-gravity, hoping that someday people will make anti-gravity shields. Uh, so, uh, so that funding persists in uh, something called the Gravity Research Foundation, and that has funded a lot of physicists. So history of physics is fascinating. So I explore it sometimes for popular works and sometimes for scholarly works. And what would be the best way for our listeners to learn more about your work and also your books? I would suggest that they look on my Twitter page, um, which my handle is P Halpern, the letter P, and then my last name, Halpern, H-A-L-P-E-R-N. You can follow me on Twitter. I, I post a lot of posts about history of science in it, um, about Einstein and other physicists. And, um, and also you can look at my website, phalpern.com. You can look at basic books. My book, Flashes of Creation, is available around the world through international online booksellers, uh, some independent booksellers. And then some of my older books are also available, and they've been translated into many languages. Uh, for example, a book I have about Einstein and Schrodinger is available in the French language. And some of my books are available in German and, um, and uh, one of my books, or two of my books are available in Italian. Um, so um, so uh, Swiss listeners take note. My books are available in the various languages as well as English. And uh, hopefully my new book will be translated into many languages uh, as well. So I'm hoping for that. Um, so please... Uh, read my books if you're interested in the topic, either in their original English or in any of the languages that they're translated into. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, uh, too. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on your show. <laughs>